You can open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Joseph hastily, Joseph of Arimathea hastily buried Jesus' body in a tomb as the, uh, I forgot, I forgot something. We are having a meeting. I've got to get this out before I get it. I'll wait till the end of my message, but I'll forget it, so I need to get it out now. We're having a meeting for everyone that's going on the Kentucky trip immediately following this service, Brett, in Fellowship Hall right next door. So if you're going to be a part, if you want to be a part, if you have questions about being a part, any, any of those categories, the Kentucky mission trip immediately after this service next door in Fellowship Hall. Okay? Last week, Joseph hurriedly buried Jesus' body in a tomb because the Sabbath was advancing very quickly. And so the body was not prepared completely. It was wrapped in linen. It was put in a tomb. Some women went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, only to find the tomb empty. And then they encountered angels who challenged them. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Jesus isn't here in a tomb. Jesus has arisen. And so the woman ran. She told the, they ran and told the disciples the exciting news. Jesus, Jesus, we saw these angels. Jesus is alive. He's not in the tomb. And then in Luke 24, 11, but those that they told did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen, that linen that Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped Jesus' body in. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so we pick up this morning in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. It says, now on that same day, this is the same day that those women had gone to the tomb so early in the morning. On that same day, two of them, two of the disciples that had heard the women's story when they returned, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. We don't know how this was done exactly, except Jesus blinded their eyes some way to recognizing exactly who he was. That would not be a, a, a difficult thing for Jesus. He asked them as he walked with them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stopped. They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, turned to Jesus and asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And and what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us, that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found the tomb just as the women had said. The tomb was empty, 
but they didn't see Jesus anywhere. Last week we read about the women who went to the tomb to anoint the body for final burial. Joseph of Arimathea having placed the body of Jesus in a tomb he had purchased, one never used. I told you they would reuse tombs. This is a brand new tomb. It had never been used before. Joseph was trying to honor Jesus in his death, never expecting a resurrection. When Joseph placed that body of Jesus in the tomb, resurrection was the last thing on his mind. The women went to the tomb with their spices, prepared to anoint the body of Jesus for final burial, never expecting a resurrection. And this morning we read about two disciples of Jesus who are returning from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're aware of everything that has happened right up to the report by the women and by Peter that the tomb indeed was empty. And now as they return to Emmaus, Jesus joins them as they journey. But he doesn't allow them to recognize who he is yet. He does inquire of the matters that they discuss. And Luke records that they stopped walking, they stood still, and their faces were downcast. Holman says they looked discouraged. The New Living Translation said sadness was written across their faces. You get the picture. These two, like all the others, thought Jesus was dead. They expected no resurrection of Jesus. No one expected Jesus to arise from the dead. Even after the report of the women who told them the message the angels had given them, Jesus is alive, these two were unconvinced. Jesus was dead. David Garland in his commentary on Luke says there are three steps in the process of recognizing Jesus as risen Lord and Savior. And he says the first we saw last week in the encounter that the women had with the angels. The angel said, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Garland says the first step in recognizing that Jesus is the risen Lord is remembering Jesus' words in his ministry. Jesus had explained on multiple occasions that he would be executed, crucified, but that he would arise, that he would die, but on the third day he would rise again. This was such a foreign concept to the followers of Jesus on so many different levels. It did not fit their concept of the Messiah who he would be or what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would be one of great strength. No religious or governmental authority would control Jesus. Certainly no authority would take Jesus' life from him. And they had no understanding of someone being raised from the dead after the brutality that Jesus had endured. Sure, Jesus had raised a young girl from the dead. Jesus had touched that coffin and raised the son of the widow in the village of Nain. He had come back to life. Jesus had called his friend Lazarus from the grave after Lazarus had been in the grave for days. But none of these had suffered the death that Jesus suffered, beaten severely, beaten almost to death, nailed to a cross, spear thrust through his side, 
he was dead and there was no one else like Jesus there was no other Jesus to raise Jesus from the dead they had no understanding they had no past experience that might have made this even remotely possible that Jesus would rise from the dead after the brutality of his death so Joseph buries the body the women prepare for anointing the disciples return to Emmaus none expecting resurrection none connecting the dots between what Jesus said would happen and how it happened exactly as he said what happened to Jesus was foretold by the Son of Man by the Messiah of God who healed the sick who gave sight to the blind who fed thousands with a few fish and loaves of bread who spoke peace to the wind and the waves who raised the dead back to life who taught with an authority that made anyone who took issue with the truth that he spoke made them look like fools and in, in, in even questioning him this Jesus prophesied his own death and resurrection this is not the typical pattern that anyone would expect of a Messiah come to save a, a people oppressed as the Jews were oppressed by Rome but but hearing, knowing, and remembering all Jesus said and did in context is the first step in the process of recognizing Jesus as risen Lord and Savior. That Jesus did all of these things that we know he did. He performed all of these miracles. He taught with authority. No one could stand against Jesus' teaching. No one could question his teaching. Did they take his life? Yeah. But he rose from the dead. And he told you these things were going to happen before they even happen. Understanding what Jesus said and did in the context in which he said and did it is the first step. I mean, if anyone's ever going to come to Christ, if you're going to share the gospel with someone, they've got to understand that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he said he was going to rise from the dead. Garland says the second step requires reading his life and his death in light of the divine plan for the Messiah laid out in the scriptures. And it is emphasized in Jesus' conversation with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. In verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning again with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus isn't calling them stupid when he calls them slow he's simply pointing out their failure to connect the dots to remember all that he had said and taught and to understand the prophecies of the only scripture that they had what we know as the old testament jesus began to explain to them all that the old testament said regarding the messiah and how those prophecies were fulfilled in the events of the previous three days we don't know exactly what passages of Scripture Jesus referred to. We don't get that detail in this conversation between he and these Emmaus Road disciples. But we do know the Scriptures that Luke used, the Old Testament Scriptures, how Luke brought the Old Testament into his gospel, how he described the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke 3, verses 4 through 6. As it is written, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. 
make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will become straight, the rough ways will be made smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. I believe the Emmaus Road disciples shared with the others how Jesus had expounded the Old Testament scripture to show them its revelation of the Messiah. I suspect Luke used the Old Testament references that he heard from these Emmaus Road disciples at many points because these are the ones that Jesus spoke himself. In Luke 4 verses 18 through 19, Jesus teaches at the synagogue. We saw this months ago last year when we began studying in in Luke. He's teaching in the synagogue in his hometown and he's allowed to read from the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 61. He reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled the scroll up and he said, today these things are fulfilled within your hearing. Jesus said, I'm the fulfillment of what the Old Testament says. When Jesus sorrows over Jerusalem and the rejection that he knows awaits him in Luke 13, 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who've killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the same message that was given to the nation of Israel in Psalm 118. Or Jesus' explanation of his lineage from David, from King David, that he was a son of King David. And at the same time, the Messiah appointed by God, David, King David's Messiah. In Luke chapter 20, verses 42 through 43, he takes a direct quote from Psalm 110. Or Daniel's vision in Daniel 7.13 to which Jesus refers in Luke 21.27 that the vision of the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. We don't know how long they walked together, but there were no doubt other passages as Jesus expounded and opened the Old Testament and how they applied to the Messiah. I think surely he took them to Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. For the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. How could Jesus have have not taken him back to Psalm 9 and said, "This, this is what God has called me to. Or Psalm 53, just listen. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root and dry ground. There's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. There's nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and he was rejected, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and And we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep, every one of us, have have gone astray. We've strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed, and he was treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream, But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, an everlasting life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. And I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many, and he interceded for the rebels. I'm confident that Jesus opened the Old Testament and just painted this picture, pointed the disciples traveling to Emmaus, a scripture that clearly outlined all that he had endured on the behalf of his people, beaten so we could be made whole, crushed for our sins, pierced for our rebellion. We've all left God to follow our own path so many times, but God laid our sins on Jesus, and Jesus endured the punishment for our sins. And this was all God's plan to make Jesus a sin offering that, that we might be, might be possible for us to be counted righteous, not because of anything we did, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He exposed himself to death. To intercede for rebels but today he is alive and God's plan has prospered in his hands
the words of Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. I'm confident that Jesus took them back to passages and just unfolded all that had taken place in those three days. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly. Stay with us. It's, it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So, so he went in and he stayed with them. And here what we see is Jesus' willingness to remain. Well, Jesus had no place to go. He was traveling on that road with those disciples to Emmaus because he wanted to interact with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. But Jesus acted like he was going to go further, giving those disciples an opportunity to invite him in. That's his willingness to remain. But there needs to be an invitation. Garland doesn't list this as one of the three steps to recognizing Jesus as the risen Lord. I would. I would say there's four. Perhaps because it's, it's so obvious. I, I think about that passage in Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And I'll dine with him. I mean, Jesus, there's got to be an invitation to come in there. You've got to invite him in. These disciples invited him in. Jesus had captured their attention. They wanted to hear more. The one that they walked with, one whom they'd not yet recognized, had begun to give them reason for hope. They were not completely sure, but they wanted to know more, so they urged him strongly to stay. They pleaded with him, please stay with us, dine with us, tell us more. Teach us more. A person's going to be a disciple of Jesus, a, a follower who lives like Jesus lived. If an individual is going to recognize Jesus as risen Lord and Savior, they must reach a point at which they urge the teacher. They're anxious. They want more. They want to know more of Jesus. They want to follow him closer. They want to know him better. They want to draw closer. They want to understand who he has called them to be a joint heir with Jesus, one conforming more and more to the likeness of Jesus daily. For that to happen, there must be a longing in the heart to know Jesus better. The Emmaus Road disciples were not content with the little that they had learned in that, that seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, those few miles they wanted more, so they urged Jesus, stay with us a while longer. And the invitation was all that was required. Asked to stay, Jesus remained to dine with him. And in verse 20, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And the intimacy of, of dining together, the eyes of the men were opened to who had been teaching them. They saw that it was Jesus, the Messiah, the one of whom the prophet spoke. It all fell into place. The events of the past days, the prophecies of old, the crucifixion and the resurrection, it all made sense. As Jesus left them, they reflected on what he had taught them. They could only acknowledge that the things Jesus taught them caused their hearts to burn within them. And notice their heart change. 
When you go back to verse 25, Jesus asked them, why are your hearts so slow to believe what the prophets foretold? Why do you find it so hard to believe that God is working in these things in order to show his great mercy and compassion through the Messiah? And now after hearing Jesus expound the Old Testament prophecies that point these things out, after the intimacy of dining together with Jesus, their eyes are open and now their hearts burn within them with these things that they've they've come to realize. Garland says the third step in recognizing Jesus is risen Lord is gathering together with others in the body of Christ for a fellowship meal in which Christ is present in the breaking of the bread. This is what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. This gathering, this partaking requires several things of us. First, an acknowledgement that Jesus is our Lord. Second, an acknowledgement that he has called us to be a part of the body of Christ. We cannot be disciples of Jesus and act independently of his church finally it requires an acknowledgement of what the elements represent the sacrifice of jesus on our behalf to make us whole to make us full healed complete in him we sang a song early on that we are gathered here together today waiting on the spirit of god waiting is one was the phrase that we sang. And I would suggest to you that it's, it's not just, it's a special time when we gather around the Lord's table, but it's not just when we gather around the Lord's table, it's when we gather together. That we gather together as the body of Christ weekly to feed on the banquet table of God's word that he sets before us that nourishes us. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, by his word right here. And so God sets banquet before us every Sunday. And as we gather together as the body of Christ, when you gather together in the body of Christ, you're acknowledging that Jesus is risen Lord and Savior. If you gather together genuinely, that this word actually means something to you, that you want to feast on it, that you want more of it, that you want Jesus, you're, you're making invitation. God, come close to us and teach us. As we gather together, the Spirit of God indwelling each one of us, the Spirit is strong in this place. And are there people that come within that are not believers? Absolutely. In a crowd of this size, there are going to be some that have not yet relationship with God. But there's going to be many that have relationship with God. And as you have relationship with God, as, as we gather together, Spirit of God within me, the Spirit of God within you, as we gather together, the Spirit of God is made even stronger, and God draws closer, and we feel his power and might as we lift up his name and praise and worship, as we turn our attention to his word that instructs, and we feed on the banquet of God's word. One of the things required is a willingness on on your part to to recognize you you can't act independently your faith in jesus christ what you believe with regard to your religion is not a private thing between you and god it is the most public thing about your life that you are identified with jesus christ being conformed to the image of christ that you want to look more like christ and act more like christ and sound more like christ on a daily basis 
And so being a part of the body of Christ is a, is a big, big element of that, that identity with Christ. In Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, it says, on, on this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will say, surely, this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is what the Emmaus Road disciples realized as Jesus gave thanks for the bread, broke it, and then handed it to them. The law had been fulfilled in Jesus. All of those things that Jesus had explained from the Old Testament about the law, they realized the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. His death, his crushing for our sins that were laid upon him has lifted the shroud of death that has hung over all people. They realized their sins were forgiven. Their shame and disgrace was removed. Their tears of sorrow, that sadness, those downcast face they had as Jesus joined them, their sorrow now was turned to joy as Jesus leaves them. They could say with Isaiah, surely this is our God. He has saved us. We trusted in him. And though he was not the Messiah we expected, he has saved us. So let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Garland gave three steps. I give you four. Remember what Jesus said himself about what it means to be his disciple. Denying yourself, dying to self, giving your all to Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Remember that the Old Testament prophets said that what happened to Jesus is exactly what would be required of the Messiah. Invite him to stay with you, to show you greater truth. No matter where you are in your walk, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, continue to invite him. He's knocking on the door, let him in. Dine with him. Then you'll know him clearly in the fellowship meal, in the gathering of God's people. You'll know him as we open the Bible, as we study God's word, you'll know him. The things that we read, the things that you hear taught, they'll make sense to you. So examine yourself. Have you, have you taken these steps? Because there are many people that claim to be followers of Christ, but they don't know his word because they've never read it. Now, I don't know how you remember. You know, Garland says a first step in, in claiming Jesus is written Lord, Lord and Savior is to remember his words. And if you don't read his word, if you've never read his word, if you have no interest in reading his word, I don't know how you can remember his word. There's nothing to remember. You don't know the Old Testament prophecies. You don't know what they say about Jesus. There's no way to connect the dots if you don't read your Bible. You don't understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. 
claim, they claim to be followers of Christ, but they don't know the prophecies of the Old Testament. They haven't engaged Jesus in any intimate fashion. They don't take seriously being a part of the body of Christ. They show up. They attend. They say they're followers of Jesus. But personally, I don't see how. I don't know how that works. So examine yourself this morning. Are you doing those things that mark you as a follower of Jesus, or is Jesus just a ticket to heaven that you're holding for that day when you die, which you're hoping hopefully will never come, but you're going to live forever. You're a follower of Jesus, and you're going to heaven when you die, but you're hoping it doesn't happen anytime soon, like you're going to live to 150 years old maybe, you know, that something will change between now and then. I had a conversation with uh, Jay, brief conversation yesterday. We saw each other, and as we departed, you know, he's, he's, I said, I'll see you tomorrow, and, and he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, I said, unless the Lord comes and rescues us both, I don't have to preach. You don't have to listen to me, you know. I'm ready for him to come. I'm ready for him to come. Last week, Debbie and I were sitting in the uh, family room talking, and Debbie was telling me, you know, there's just so many things I feel like I, I need to do, I should have done, I haven't done, or I need to do, or I'm not getting to, or, you know, I was sitting in my throne, as she calls it, my big black leather chair, shaving my electric razor. Takes a while when you've got this much acreage to shave, you know. I'm shaving, and I said, you know what, I didn't, I never stopped shaving. I said, if Jesus breaks through the clouds right now, I'm ready to go. And I don't feel like I need to be out running up and down the street sharing the gospel with all of my neighbors the moment that Jesus breaks through the clouds. You know, we, we live our lives, and, and God puts opportunities in front of us, whatever those opportunities may be. You know, God puts those opportunities in front of us, and we seize on them, and we don't always get it right. Sometimes we fail to seize on them. That's why Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. We don't make excuses for it. We recognize it. We try to correct it moving forward. But God calls us to ministry, and, and we engage ministry. And when you're engaged in ministry, when you are actively engaged in ministry, when you remember the words of Jesus Christ, that you're to deny yourself and die to self and take up your cross and follow him, that you're to love other people, that you're to serve, you're to sacrifice, when you recognize that the Old Testament unfolded everything that Jesus went through, that he's the fulfillment of the law, that he died for your sins so you wouldn't have to die for them yourselves. When you invite him in to be a part of you and to teach you that you would learn of him, that you would draw close to him, when you identify yourself with his people and say, I want to be a part of the body of Christ. And then God opens avenues of ministry for you to engage in. And you give yourself unreservedly to those avenues of ministry. You, you, you hold nothing back from him. Then 
when he breaks through the clouds, it doesn't matter if you're in the shower, doesn't matter if you're shaving, doesn't matter if you're driving your car down the road, doesn't matter if you're on vacation for a week. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you're, it's, it's, it doesn't matter if I'm standing here preaching. I don't need Jesus to break through the clouds when I'm standing preaching, going, oh, good, he caught me doing something good, you know. <laughs> I don't need to be out at the prison, you know. I, Jesus has already taken care of all of that. I'm ready for him to break through the clouds. I'm content. Because going to be with him is going to be better than anything you've ever experienced on this earth. Anything that you ever could experience on this earth. Are you ready? That's the real question, I guess. Are you ready to go be with him? Because if you're ready to go be with him, it means you know his word. You know what it says. You know the Old Testament said Jesus was going to come and die for our sins, and you've invited him in, and you've learned of him, and you know him intimately, and you've embraced those opportunities to minister that God has set before you. If you're ready for him to come, it implies all of those things are in place. Are you ready for Jesus to come? Let me ask all of you to stand. Once again, if you've never before put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never before decided, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I, this is, I hear this truth. You're like the disciple on the Emmaus Road. And man, your eyes have been opened this morning to something you've not realized in the past. And you want to follow Jesus. You ready to do that today? I mean, I'd, I'd love to pray with you. We have counselors that will counsel with you, take up the conversation. Um, we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We'd be a great group of people for you to come and live with and walk with. You know, our standard is not that high. Je Jesus has already set the bar and cleared it for us. And so, man, we would we would love to walk with you as Jesus walked with those Emmaus Road disciples. We'd love to travel the, the travel of life with you, walk with you you don't know Jesus, we want you to know Jesus. I believe it's something that you do publicly. I believe it's the biggest part of your life when you're a follower of Jesus. And so we ask people to do it publicly. You know, I'm going to be standing right here at the front to not worry about anybody that's watching, but respond to Jesus. And for the rest of you, man, I don't know what God's doing in your life. I don't know what he's calling you to. I don't know what he's challenging you with. But I believe the the position, the posture of humility before God and before men is one that God honors. So being on your knees here at the front, just crying out to God for clarity, for strength to do what he's calling you to, for, for repentance of sin, for realign yourself with God, whatever's going on, just crying out to him because of the anguish of your heart. I believe God responds to humility. And so if you need to be on your knees here at the front praying about something, you, you seize upon the opportunity. God is here. His Spirit is here this morning because I know a great many people walked in with the Spirit of God within them. So God's Spirit is strong in you. You respond to God as He speaks to you.